Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Thursday, February 9th, 2023, and welcome to another edition of The Ben Jarofsky Show, brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything that there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and every now and again, if it's your bag, what kind of pots you can find at the dispensaries, you know, Cheech and Chong style. And so much more, columns from your very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help the show, just jump on over to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, that's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Vallis Surge Thursday, and here's why. Because Paul Vallis is surging. Almost every single poll, I'm going to get into this with my guest. I don't believe anything the polls have to say. But one consistent thing each poll has, no matter who's releasing it, is that Paul Vallis is uh, in first place. Or right behind whoever's in first place in second place, which means he'll be in the runoff, Paul Vallis. Let me just, uh, for some of you new people out there, you don't really know who Paul Vallis is. I can tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he, Paul Vallis ran the schools for several years under Mayor Richard uh, M. Daly. Paul Vallis was a revenue director for uh, Richard M. Daly. That's the Daly who was the mayor in the 90s. Okay, the all-powerful Mayor Daly, I run this city. And Paul Vallis uh, was one of his top aides. Uh, then he kind of drifted away from Chicago uh, for many years. He was uh, in charge of the schools in Philly. He was in charge of the schools in uh, New Orleans. I think there was a city in Connecticut that he was running schools in, and he drifted back to Chicago, and he ran for lieutenant governor as uh, uh, with uh, Pat Quinn in 2014. So he's kind of been a character on the fringes, of illinois and chicago politics for the last 10 years he ran in 2019 didn't do that well in the marriage race but now he's surging and it's just so obvious to me what's going on here and i'm going to say this i know i probably shouldn't say this but i'm going to say this we were talking about it with monroe yesterday i really have a sense of deja vu for me as an old guy, as an old white guy in this town, I remember 83 and the Epton race before it's too late. And I remember in 89 when Richie Daly ran. First, he had to beat uh, Eugene Sawyer, in the Democratic primary. He had a different system then. Then he had to beat uh, Tim Evans in the general elections. Tim Evans was running uh, as a third-party candidate. And he was victorious. I just remember, like, White people in Chicago were so happy. It was like, we got it back. We got it back. And it's like, I know you're all going to deny it. You're all, no, I'm not like that. You're putting thoughts into my head. But I, I know you guys. <laughs> I've been among you for a long time. I've lived in Chicago since 1981. You've shared your thoughts with me over beers. I know what's in your head. I know what you're thinking. We're getting it back. And I, I've like never understood this. I, I guess it's growing up in Evanston, liberal Evanston. I just like, I could never understand why everybody wasn't for Harold Washington. I just, I, it was like eight, foreign in my head. I'm like, you guys aren't for Harold Washington? Well, Ben, you know, he did that time in jail very concerned about it. suddenly they're all worried about some like tax case nobody else in the world would have been thrown into this is ancient history i know nobody knows what i'm talking about nobody else in the world would have been thrown into jail but harold got thrown into jail it was all political so they were concerned that he didn't pay his taxes meanwhile donald trump <laughs> brags about not paying taxes the same people are very concerned about harold washington not paying his taxes are applauding donald trump for not paying taxes 
not revealing his tax situation. Just an interesting perspective. When it was Harold Washington, it was a sign that he was irresponsible and lawless and not an abiding citizen, a law-abiding citizen. We don't know if we can trust him. But when it's Donald Trump, it's like, wow, what a brilliant businessman. Knows how to play the game. Like, there's such an inconsistency in your brains. And you won't even, like, acknowledge the inconsistency. I just have to go with the flow of a conversation that completely contradicts the conversation that went before it. It's like, it's so bizarre having any kind of political discourse with MAGA in general, because the things they denounce is that Democrats are doing, they applaud when Republicans do it. So like the, supposedly the cornerstone of MAGA is a belief in free expression. And yet you got, they're cheering on Ron DeSantis as he tells teachers in Florida what they can and cannot teach when it comes to race relations. It's completely contradictory. They don't care. Their mind just flips. And it's like, it always flips with race. I'm just telling you folks, I've been alive a long time. I've seen it a long time. And I just get this sense with Paul Vallis. That's what's here. That surge. It's like, yeah, we're going to get it back. (laughs) What are you going to get back, people? Your life is not going to be any better or worse. If there's a white mayor, just telling you that you may feel better. I don't know what kind of weird level, but it it's not going to change in any significant way. And if it's anything like daily, oh, my goodness, all the goodies will be going to people, who, developers downtown. It won't be going to you. <laughs> oh, Lord, you're feeling it. Anyway, that's my sense of where we are right now. It really reminds me more. Monroe was talking about Epton before it's too late in 83. But it kind of reminds me more of 89 when Daly ran. Harold had died in 87. And we had the two years of Sawyer. And it was like, yeah, Daly, Daly. We love Daly. And then after that, how many years Chicago? He kept electing the guy. Kept just, you see his name, you start voting. Can't stop. Love him. Corruption. We don't care. Suddenly he didn't care about corruption. As long as it was daily corruption. And you, by the way, guys, you never once held crime against daily. All this talk of crime, it's the most important issue in the city right now. It's the defining issue in the city. I never heard any of that talk when Daly was the mayor. And guess what? We had a lot of crime in Chicago. Again, that inconsistency. Anyway, that's my thoughts uh, as I read these stories and see these polls about the Paul Valla surge. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce my distinguished guest. Kina Collins is your name. Good friend of this show. Kina, welcome back. Hey, Benny J. Thanks for having me having me back. Yes. So Kina Collins, uh, as uh, longtime listeners to the show know, uh, ran for Congress against Danny K. Davis in the 7th Congressional uh, in Chicago. And uh, you did not win that primary. You ran the Democratic primary. But it was closer than a lot of people. Down to the wire. Yes. So why don't you just uh, catch people up on your life? Uh, first, talk about the before we take the deep dive into politics and what's going on in the city right now. Just catch people up on what you've been doing uh, since the primary. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it was such a contentious race. It was one of the most serious challenges that Congressman Davis has had in his 25 year tenure um, as our congressman. And I feel like a lot of people got ignited, um, Ben. And so um immediately after uh the race a lot of conversation happened in our district just about nancy pelosi you know stepping in hakeem jeffries president biden even endorsed in the race right so bringing this attention and shifting the national conversation about how people talk about young black folks in the city of chicago because we know um how that goes it's it's violent inherently violent and these young people don't care about the city and then here you have a young person running for a seat and inspiring a lot of people um so in between that time of course i've tragically have had to work with survivors of mass shootings that have happened here across the state of illinois um highland park which happened on july 4th which was almost immediately after our primary and then survivors here in west garfield park on the west side of chicago and so um i've accepted a new job offer as executive director for democratizing philanthropy project 
which is a national organization. And basically what I do, Ben, is I fund, I help fund the movement. So those great organizations like Texas Organizing Project, New Georgia um, Project, Florida Rising, CASA, One Fair Wage, all these organizations that are grassroots organizations, we basically help give them seed money and we teach them how to, you know, be sustainable by grassroots fundraising. And I'm really excited about that because I think that the way that we need to be talking about this movement in this very watershed moment in American history is, especially on the left, is organized people, organized money, and organized narrative. And when we build our people power and we build our money power without corporate interests, um, it's nothing that we can't do. We, When we do that, we could take established uh, elected officials down to the wire in these democratic primaries. And so, um, I'm really excited about the work and I'm super proud of everybody who helped on the campaign. All right. Uh, and uh, obviously you come at it with a leftist perspective of anybody who knows anything about your campaigns, if you look past appearances on the show and what you just said, uh, you come at it from a leftist uh, perspective. So let's just uh, move that perspective into the mayor's race right now, which is what everybody's absolutely talking about. Uh, and uh, so the polls show that uh, Paul Vallis is uh, either in first or second uh, in um, in the race and almost guaranteed as a result to make the runoff. Um, do you believe that's an accurate reflection of where the city is right now? And if so, what does that say about where the city is right now? You know, you got to take polls with a grain of salt. But here's what I want to keep in the mind of progressives, uh, leftists in the city. Paul Vallis, um, we need to pay attention to what is happening um, because Paul Vallis is the only white guy in the race. He's being funded by some of the worst and nefarious figures, including, um, as you know, uh, ben, I was one of the young co-organizers for Laquan McDonald. Paul Vallis was recently gifted a campaign donation from the one of the former cops who um, participated and conspired in the cover-up in the murder of Laquan McDonald. He was forced by the community to give the money back after it was outed. Um, but why I say that we need to pay attention is because Paul Vallis is the only one currently in the race with a consolidated base of people. And so as you were talking about at the top of the show, um, this basically fear from white liberals, white moderates, wealthy white folks um, in the city of Chicago who like to talk and sling around this progressive uh, talking points, but then they go into the ballot booth and vote for people like Paul Vallis he's getting ready to advance into the runoff and very well could take the mayoral ship, uh, the, the mayoral seat if we don't get our act together and consolidate behind a candidate. And so, um, you know, there are seven African-American candidates running and one Latino candidate running. And that progressive lane seems to be the hot lane that everybody seems to be going in. And that's my concern about the polling. And in that respect, I do think that Paul Vallis is polling very well. This, you have to remember, this is his third time running for the seat, I believe. Um, yeah, it's his third time, second, second time running for the seat. So he has some face name recognition. He served in uh, the capacity over our schools here at the Chicago Public School. Um, system. And so people know who Paul Vallis is. Black folks know who he is. Latino folks know who he is. White folks know who he is. And Lori, who is the incumbent, is not an incumbent that is in such a strong standing that her base can't be cracked and Paul Vallis can't peel off votes. So with all of that being said, I think that uh, many of us know that in 2019, it was a very different race. Lori was polling at about 3% <laughs> close to the election. Nobody thought she had a shot. And here we are um, in the Lori Lightfoot administration, but we can't sleep on Paul Vallis because he could very well steal this seat. All right. Uh, and uh, lots of things you said on that riff that I can follow up on. Let's just start with this point. Um, if we don't get our act together to consolidate, 
the vote, he will win. Who's the we in that sentence? It's it's progressives. It's young people. It's women. It's black folks. It's brown folks. It's everybody who has been at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to this very piss poor policy that gets pushed forth by our city council and the mayors who have held this seat. The place that we are right now in the city of Chicago should not be shocking to people. We're talking about coming off of the helm of a mayor, um, the Emanuel administration that gutted the public education system, 50 public schools shut down, one of the largest American public school shutdowns in the history of the United States. Anybody on the national level or anywhere who's speaking on the city of Chicago, writing think pieces, writing uh, all of these, you know, all this commentary about the violence in Chicago, you can't do that without speaking about the decades that we have defunded education, mental health services, and necessities that people need all across this, this city. And so when I say who should be consolidating, it's the people who have the most to lose. When Paul Vallis allowing him to ascend in this moment, in a moment that has been galvanized by the Black Lives Matter movement, has galvanized by the Women's March movement, has been galvanized by young people fighting for environmental uh, justice in BIPOC communities across cities, major cities like Chicago. Um, to allow him to slip through the cracks because we're not unified, shame on us if we allow that to happen. And so um, the we is everybody who has something to lose. And that's the most historically marginalized communities and groups across the city of Chicago. We have seen the Paul Vallis playbook time and time again. They keep saying that these methods are the things that are going to move our city forward. And each uh, mayor who has stepped forward over militarizing, over policing, over bloating the city budget with an over bloated police budget has led to more crime, has led to more poverty, and, and has led to disenfranchisement. Let's be clear, the quarter million Black folks who have left places like the city of Chicago did not leave voluntarily. They were pushed out of their communities. When you don't have a school, when you don't have grocery stores, when it's easier to get a gun than it is fresh produce and clean water, lead-free water in your neighborhood, that is not black people moving out of the west side and south side. That is us systematically being pushed out of those places. And so I just want the left, the progressives in this city and any decent Chicagoan who believes um, in this moment of parity in our city to uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, all right, uh, you talk about the number of uh, black people who've been pushed out of the city, the decline in the black population in the city of Chicago over the last 20 years, basically uh, your whole lifetime, uh, uh, Kina. Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, the number of black candidates in the race far out totals any other group. And now we're heading into the Mark Sims question, which everybody gets now on the Ben Jarowski show. And I got to give credit to uh, Frequent Gas podcaster Mark Sims because he's the one who raised it uh, several times. Uh, and that is there are seven candidates in a race, one man, one white man, one Hispanic man, uh, and seven black candidates. Mark Sims has his own theories about this. I'm asking my guests who come on for their theories about this. Yeah. Why do you think there's so many more black candidates than any uh, other race or ethnicity? Well, shout out to Mark Sims because Mark posing this question is a, a question that makes us have to do a deep soul searching in the African-American community and where we are in black politics in the state of Illinois and in the city of Chicago and really across the country. Look at our Senate. We have no black women serving in the United States Senate right now, even though we are the strongest voting bloc in the United States of America. And so when we talk about the, the reason why Mark's question is important, it's because it's about the consolidation of power. We don't get, I, I only have lived through the folklore of Harold Washington and benefited from the great policies that he put forth to diversify City Hall and diversify the, the uh, fifth floor. And many other communities outside of the African-American communities, including women in the Latino community and the AAPI community have benefited from Harold Washington's foresight and vision. But the only way we got to Harold Washington 
Ben Jarofsky was that the black community came together. They came, the stakeholders came into a room and they said, we will not run more than one black candidate. And here is the candidate that we choose. And the rest is history. Um, and one of the greatest rainbow coalitions to usher in electoral organizing and the, the first black mayor in the city of Chicago. Um, I think that there's a generational fight happening in the African-American community. You have this generation of the old guard who was there when Harold Washington set up shop and was doing this amazing organizing across the, the, the city. And they have not let go of those glory days. Uh, those glory days have stayed with them um, and rightfully so. Um, but we have ushered in and moved into a new era of organizing and political revolution in the city of Chicago. And I would say it's marked by the Rakia Boyd uh, case in the city of Chicago. It's marked by Laquan McDonald, Quintonio Legreer. It's marked by the public school shutdown. It's marked by the rise of uh, amazing, as I like to call them, political prophets like Karen Lewis, right? Who got me engaged in the political system, right? That got me inspired um, to want to get engaged. Um, that birthed the new generation of young people um, like the Jamal Greens, who are clamoring and saying that you all have adopted these older antiquated tactics and it's not resonating with the young people in the city of Chicago and specifically young black people. When we look at the homicide rate and the shooters in the city of Chicago, it falls in that range of 18 to 24 year olds. Who is reaching those young people? And the answer is, I can't really think of many elected officials in the city of Chicago who have a connection to those young people in this city. When you think of the carjackings, where once again, 14 to 18 year olds who are doing the carjackings. Well, 10 years ago, when they shut their public schools down, those kids were four, five and seven years old. They've never grown up in a community with a proper neighborhood school. And I want your viewers to let that sink in. And so um, we're grappling with this generational fight. There's a lot of issues happening on the west side and south side of the city of Chicago. And people believe that we need a sense of urgency and leadership to get those things done. And unfortunately, um, we don't have that consolidated candidate, that unity candidate that bridges the gap between my generation, the generation under me, and those who have stood in the old guard. Uh, and uh, so are you endorsing anybody uh, in this mayoral race? I have not made any public endorsements of any of the mayoral candidates. I am excited uh, by a few of the candidates and I wish that they would consolidate. We, we know that uh, Brandon Johnson is getting a lot of support from the CTU, the S from SEIU, from um, IPOs across the city. But I have to say, J. Ma Green has said some things uh, in these debates that I'm like, most notably calling Willie Wilson out for saying you need to hunt people down like rabbits, right? Um, that that was a breath of fresh air for me. So um, I'm in the 16% of undecided voters. <laughs> for real? Oh, undecided voters. You're one of the undecided proud, voters. But I am proud to see campaigns like Brandon Johnson and Cam Buckner J. Maul Green, really pushing um, the conversation to the left and really putting, you know, Brandon's putting in some serious iron. He's raising the money and he's he's trying to get the folks excited. So um, I, I, I wish that even in these very short weeks leading up to the election, that the Black candidates will realistically sit down and get behind one candidate that they think could be the unity candidate. All right, one candidate that you did not name uh, is the mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Uh, so what's your opinions about Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, at this moment in time? I think that you have to be fair in the sense that she inherited a mess, but we also have to say the quiet part out loud. She exacerbated the mess in a lot of ways. And there were several points and junctions in her uh, first term where she could have bridged the gap between, um, once again, young black folks and brown folks in this city and 
the powers that be and she didn't do that. She didn't use her platform to leverage, um, making sure that people were protected. And one thing that immediately stood out in my head was this COVID relief money that we got from the federal government. She immediately pivoted and directed that money to the Chicago Police Department. There were people um, who had lost their jobs, who were being evicted. Um, I'm a gun violence prevention advocate, and that's how I got my start. The number one root cause of gun violence is poverty. And COVID exacerbated that. And instead of reaching back to the people, she over-militarized our communities. Now, a lot of the candidates have brought up her lifting the bridges um, during the George Floyd uprisings. I was there. I was on the bridge. I saw the level of aggression that the Chicago Police Department had with very young protesters who were peacefully protesting. Um, um, and so I was there. I, this is the first... I, I witnessed account of what was happening and for her to make that call as the mayor to kettle young people down downtown as the police, she knew that the police were agitated. They were being aggressive. There was absolutely no way you couldn't have known that. Um, they beat people, they arrested people, and then they stopped the CTA lines from allowing these young people to get out of that jam. That let me know about not about her being the mayor or being a leader that let me know about her character and her lack of empathy and compassion for young people across the city she needs to go and so um while i'm not excited about a paul vallis and lori lightfoot matchup um i really have to reiterate again that we this is what we're up against if we don't consolidate behind one candidate um, we allow for bad leadership to continue to be bad leadership, and we allow for even worse leadership to have the opportunity to snatch the mayor seat. And so um, that's I, I'm not a Lori Lightfoot fan, and a lot of people know that <laughs> uh, about me. I, I, I think that um, she doesn't collaborate well. I don't think that she really has moved the city forward. I was a part of the community meetings in Invest Southwest here in Austin. The Laramie Street Bank was, uh, they accepted an RFP. The process was horrendous. Um, there are over nearly, not, there are nearly 100,000 people in the Austin community. Only 77 people participated in that community meeting. That's not even a drop in the bucket in Austin. And then she issued out these RFPs without a community benefits agreement, without you know, um, community voice. And so I think that um, it's not just a lack of leadership, it's a lack of character and a lack of empathy for the people in the city of Chicago. Going back to the summer of 2020, uh, this is a favorite theme uh, on this show that I have anyway. Uh, there's been no, how do I put this, Keena? There's been no reflection in my humble opinion about what went down uh, in that summer in the city. Oh, mm -hmm the tactics, the strategies of the police department in dealing with the protests and dealing with the rioting and dealing with the unrest, as you call it. No, I've not seen any organized attempt uh, by the city of Chicago, by the powers that be in the city of Chicago, by the think tanks of Chicago, getting together to go, what did we do? How did we handle this? What was the source of, of this uh, dissent? Was it a police riot? Was the mayor in charge? Uh, I've had conversations on the mic on this podcast with various guests, but most of my guests are on the outside looking in. Okay. That's kind of where you are when you're the Ben Jarofsky show. You're on the outside looking in. If you're in the inside, you don't come on this show. Right. On an Eddie B show. Uh, <laughs> so classic Chicago determined never to learn anything, Kina. That's our city. We will never learn because we're perfect. Uh, we'll just keep doing the same old thing forever. So I'll ask you this specific question. In your humble opinion, was Lori Lightfoot in charge of the police uh, in uh, May and June of 2020, or were the police just doing their own thing? Yes. that is the, 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 the role of the mayor is an executive role. You call the shots on these things. And this shift blaming is a, a big part of the problem. But the question that needed to be asked in that moment is why 
why does it always require a viral consumption of black suffering and outrage in order to hold people accountable for anything unjust that happens, not just in the city of Chicago, but across the country, right? But as far as Lori Lightfoot goes, we saw in her first run for mayor how dismissive she was to the organizing and activist community um, who had tangled with her before when she served as president of the Chicago Police Board. Right. And was dismissive to Rakia Boyd's family was not very helpful in Laquan McDonald. Right. Um, and so we know how this goes. Uh, ben, I, we saw it up close and personal with Laquan McDonald. An entire system conspired to cover up the murder of a child in the city of Chicago, a black child in the most heinous and vicious way possible. But beyond the uprisings of George Floyd, after that, we saw the emergence of Anjanette Young and the tape of a Black woman literally standing in her home naked for 45 minutes as male officers with automatic and semi-automatic uh, assault rifles were in her home, raiding her home illegally. We saw the dismissive nature of Lori Lightfoot, city attorneys, to the life and uh, lack of empathy to Anjanette Young. And so we've seen all that we need to see from Lori. She is not, um, you know, when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. And she, she showed us who she was when she ran, after she became mayor, how she handled these uprisings, and how she continues to, to botch and handle the disconnect between the Chicago Police Department and, and communities that are terrorized by them often on the west side and south side of the city of Chicago. So, yeah, I, she definitely was in charge and she did nothing. All right. Uh, I'm not quite sure I agree with you on that point, but I'll move on. Uh, Where's your disagreement? Well, I this is what I, well, first of all, I do not know. Everything I'm about to say is pure speculation. So I have to acknowledge, I don't know. It's not like Lori Lightfoot and I talk, okay? You know, like she calls me up, Benny J, this is what's on my mind. Let me get your thoughts. That never happens. But so we had, Troy LaRavier was on the show uh, right after the, um, uh, the protests outside of Trump Tower. He was there protesting. And he told a very compelling story. I urge everybody to check out the interview. It was very compelling about how it was just the police mass arrest, including himself. Yes. Rolling into jail. And um, I, what, what, what they were doing, protecting Trump Towers, I do not know. Uh, but there was mass arrests. And at the same time, roughly at the same time, uh, there was rioting. Uh, uh, on the south and uh, southwest sides. Mm -hmm. And shortly thereafter, uh, that was where, where Lori Lightfoot had that exchange with Alderman Raymond Lopez, which we played all the time on the show. We had a field day with that one. If we're going to live through this misery, we might as well have a laugh at it, uh, where they started cussing each other out. And um, Lopez was asking Kina I really a compelling and important question, which is like, what is your strategy for dealing with this unrest? Okay, I got, are you just trying to get people to riot in my neighborhood or other Southside neighborhoods uh, as opposed to going downtown? Is that what you're up to? And, and Mayor Lightfoot did not answer that question. She cussed him out. It's a very important question that he was asking her. Now, whether you believe he's sincere in asking it is really irrelevant in my humble opinion, Lori Lightfoot, because it's an important question that people should know. Like, was there a strategy? And if if there was a strategy to quote unquote protect the downtown, did that mean the south side and west sides were vulnerable? And like, did you know what you were doing? And so that's why my sometimes I just think like she just didn't have control. I'm not certain. I don't. I have never seen the report or study that showed she was in charge. She was in contact with police. You get what I'm saying? Like she was strategizing with them and trying to figure out where we should put uh, various officers. And uh, I just, I had the sense that nobody was in charge. That was 
basically my sense. Well, it's it's the abdicating of responsibility. Is that the safety? If, if sometimes heaviest hit that wears the crown, right? Like you want to be the mayor of the third largest city in the United States, and if it is the case, and a very valid point that you're making, Ben, that she didn't have control. Get out of the way, because what I saw downtown was police protecting property, not life. That is what I saw. I saw chemicals like pepper spray and uh, uh, tear gas being used on peaceful protesters. And quite frankly, the bridges were the area that they focus in a lot. I wasn't um, at the place where Troy was, but that area was heavily concentrated with a lot of young black and brown youth. And you cannot abdicate the responsibility of when things like that happen. And that's the question that Chicagoans are going to have to answer them, ask themselves too, as they go into the, to the ballot box. You know, are we going to have a leader who's going to take responsibility? I feel like every time I've seen these press conferences between her, Superintendent um, David Brown, all these, everybody's pointing fingers. They're pointing fingers at Kim Fox. She's pointing fingers at the mayor. The mayor's pointing fingers at the FOP. It's like all of you, all of this is a, is a garbage perspective on what's happening. Because what it felt like is that, and we know that CPD is trained to protect property, not life for real, in my opinion. That is in my honest opinion. And that example of that protest was a is, is a firm example for me. I just think... I. As the mayor, you cannot be let off the hook on that. <laughs> I'm just like not letting her off the hook on that. All right. Uh, you also said something else. I would love for you to take a riff on this. Uh, it was, says the number one cause of gun violence is poverty. Uh, why don't you uh, go into that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that our city budget, our state budget is a moral document and it's a moral compass of what we care about and we've constantly seen just po poverty taxes on poor people across the city whether it's ticketing you know cars uh on some of the poorest areas in the city um whether it's shutting down our public education system and like i said basic necessities that we need like grocery stores and clean water we don't have access to those things on the west side of chicago i'm an austinite so i can really speak from the perspective of somebody who was born and raised in the 28th ward and has constantly seen the deterioration of my neighborhood but i've seen a growth in the police budgets, right? I've seen uh, an investment in things like the Cop Academy that's built in West Garfield Park, right? And so when you don't have access to a strong local economy, what happens? You build an alternative economy. And so what we deal with heavily on the West side and on the South side are open air drug markets. 290 is the expressway um, off, it's the highway, um, coming into the west side of Chicago, and it is referred to as Heroin Highway. It is one of the largest heroin corridors in the nation. Um, and that is being pumped here um, into the Austin community, which is the second largest neighborhood in the city. Well, what does this have to do with poverty? Well, if you're not having access to a strong local economy, you build an alternative economy, you get access to illegal guns, you set up open air drug markets, wherever this illegal money is flowing, blood will also flow. And we have said this constantly. Um, there were all these stories about young people from the West Side and South Side coming downtown. Remember all the mania about, you know, these kids wiling out in Grant Park, the park that we all pay for as taxpayers, but whatever. These kids are coming down here, downtown. These natives are coming down here. No, no conversation about the Lollapalooza kids that come from the suburbs um, into downtown, but our kids can't come downtown. They are coming downtown because we don't have an investment in parks on the west side and south side. They're coming downtown because they're dodging bullets from flying in our community. And they know that there's a police presence down there to do what then? Protect property. So they know the police are down there. They know it's safer down or it's presumably presumably safer downtown. So that is where they're migrating to because there's nothing in the community recreationally for these young people to do. And so 
that's another critique that I have of the mayor. Like we we know every summer that these things have happened and you, you're talking about Invest Southwest without community input and without an actual strategy plan for those vulnerable populations and demographics that deal with shootings and who deal with homicide, which are young people in this city. And so when I say that the root cause of gun violence is poverty, um, we have to look at why are people shooting, how they're getting the guns, and what are we doing or lack thereof to the actual prevention of the bullets flying in the first place. And so anytime we see public school shutdowns, the evisceration of mental health services, we see toxins in the air, we see, you know, um, uh, blighted homes and abandoned buildings and boarded up schools, that is the bullet flying in the air before anybody pulls the trigger. And so people know when they're being invested in and when they are not being invested in, and we are not being invested in. And so um, the, the best way for us to prevent a lot of this gun violence is to provide these opportunities, but yet we have circled the wagon with these same antiquated policies on what they think is gonna stop um, these bullets. And I, and I know I'm harping a lot on the policing, but you could put a thousand police officers <laughs> on the beat. That is not gonna stop these bullets from flying. It will not. You have to get to the root causes of why these things are happening. And by the way, you should come into these neighborhoods, breathe our air, drink our water, and deal with the issues that we deal with before you just automatically assume more policing is gonna be the solution to those problems. And I think she's getting called out, uh, and a lot of candidates are being called out in this mayoral race around that topic of over-policing. Yeah, and uh, I'd also always point out uh, the reality before we move on uh, from to another topic. Again, I, I say this to every show. Estimated 35% of the people will vote in this election on the city of Chicago. Uh, and so <laughs> it's really hard to have a democracy when people don't participate in the democracy. And we, we could do a whole show on why people don't vote, okay, which I'm not I don't really want to go down that path right now, Keena. That's a whole other show, which I'd be delighted to have with you. Why is it only that 35% of the people vote? It's much higher, by the way, for presidential or uh, uh, elections. I was just taking a look at that, having a, a debate with Matt Martin about this, and I was so shocked. That, like, I mean, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but it's almost like twice as much the percentage of people who turn out for a presidential election than people who turn out for a mayoral election. Uh, and they used to say all oh, politics is local, uh, but it's really going to be hard. But, and apparently it's not local because people are sound asleep, but it's really hard to implement policies. Um, how do I put this? That really radically change Chicago uh, if it's like the same people voting all the time. Yeah. You follow what I just told you? You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's a really good point, Ben. And to, to the point of what you, like you having a guest today that's from the West Side, the aldermen and state reps and the mayor, they don't know these young men who are standing on the corner. They don't know these young men. They're not asking them, or young women, they're not asking them, what do you need, right? Like, how do we fix this? How do we pull you in as a stakeholder? The strategy has been to treat them as other, as if they're not a part of the collective you may be upset that an open air drug market is set up in your community, but either way, these young people and people who are participating in this market live in our community. They can vote in our community, right? Um, and we shouldn't be talking to young people in this city or just folks in this city, poor people or working poor people in this city, in the chapter, in the place that they are, but where we could potentially, we should be talking to them and, and the, the prospect of where we could potentially be. Nobody has really articulated a vision of how not to other the people in this city who feel on the outskirts. And that includes the progressives. I'm gonna call the progressives out too, because the, I've seen in the last decade in the city of Chicago, a robust, you know, just first and political infrastructure being built on the north side and the northwest side of the progressive space 
But these are conversations that I have with my peers who have really strong IPOs. I'm like, yo, y'all need to come to the West side. Teach us how to build these IPOs and work with us and give us some of that seed money that you have in your political organization so that we can rebuild these coalitions. People are petrified to go to Inglewood. They're petrified to step in North Lawndale. Uh, when I was running in my race, uh, I had this whole conversation and talk with indivisible chapters, which the all the indivisible chapters across the city and the state endorsed our campaign and nationally they endorsed us. And I was really shocked by that, but just like we have been doing the work, but their number one question was just like, how do we organize on the West side? And it's like, you door knock, you phone bank, you walk up to people and you talk to them as if they're human, right? And so constantly stripping this humanity of people who are on the outskirts or who we like to blame for the violence or what they would think is a deterioration of the city of Chicago is negating an entire population of the electorate who those people who are closest to the pain are should be closest to the decision making because they know why they're carrying a gun. They know why they are carjacking. They know why they are selling drugs. Right. And so um, this is accountability metric that I've even had to hold for myself here in the Austin community. How many times have I walked past these young men and not asked them their story or asked them their name and really had to check myself this last summer and, and build those relationships with um, these young men who, by the way, they always save my DoorDash. They never... <laughs> eat my DoorDash or touch my Amazon packages, right? Because there's a sense of community and they know me and I know them. And so I, that's something I also have noticed in this local election, in the mayoral election, that there's a disconnect between us building political power and who we think deserves a seat. And that goes for the progressives too. How many of them, how many progressive groups are including the voices of um, people who are not in unions, who don't have any political jobs, they don't know the first thing about a ballot. Those are the folks that we need to pull in, but they're asleep then because nobody, everybody's ignoring them. Um, and that's the silent, that's really the silent vote in the city of Chicago if we really organize them. All right, uh, so we're uh, heading into politics. Uh, so let's just take the deep dive into political junkiehood. We'll close down the show with this. Uh, and this, I haven't had this conversation in about a week or so. And uh, pick your brain here. Uh, and thank you for sending this to me. I've forgotten about this. Governor J.B. Pritzker, uh, who is a Democrat, as we all know, uh, has decided to wade into the waters, uh, to quote the great Ram Ramsey Lewis, uh, and endorse uh, some aldermanic candidates. And I saw this list. I think I saw it on uh, Shia Kapos. Shout out, Shia. Uh, I think that's where I saw it originally. Uh, political, Illinois political. I, oh, it's must reading for junkies. And um, Kina, I'm, I just, <laughs> I'm struggling with this list, trying to figure out a rhyme or reason to what the governor is up to. Uh, and maybe you can help me, okay, with uh, these endorsements. First of all, he doesn't endorse in every ward. There's 50 wards in the city of Chicago. Uh, and uh, I just got to do a quick math. I think it, uh, quick math tells me he endorsed in roughly 20, if that. So majority didn't endorse. Uh, he endorsed uh, Pat Dowell in the third ward, Lamont Robinson in the fourth, William Hall in the sixth, Michelle Harris in the eighth, Anthony Beal in the ninth, Nicole Lee in the 11th, Stephanie Coleman in the 16th, uh, Ronnie Mosley in the 21st, Michael Rodriguez in the 22nd, uh, Monique Scott in the 24th, Walter Burnett in the 27th, Jason Urban in the 28th, Chris Talia Faro in the 29th, Rosanna Rodriguez in the 33rd, Carlos Ramirez Rosa in the 35th, Emma Mitz in the 37th, uh, and Samantha Nugent in the 39th. I'm trying to find a pattern there. JB, what are you up to? <laughs> Uh, what is going on with Governor Pritzker in your humble opinion? Do you see do you see a pattern there? Do you see anything like that may like a rhyme or a reason, a method to the madness? Your thoughts? Um, <laughs> I, I I don't know understand why the governor is stepping into these races. 
Um, a lot of that list, once again, and we should, we this is something that we should take note in in Black Chicago are Black wards on the west side and south side, once again. Um, I don't get the feeling, you know, obviously I feel like a lot of Black Democratic voters in the city of Chicago support the Democratic nominee, but I didn't quite get the feeling I don't get the feeling that J.B. Pritzker is just beloved in these areas. And a lot of the times when we see um, heads of the Democratic Party or any political party um, starting to put their thumb on the scale in some of these races is because they're trying to build out power blocks um, in these areas. And so um, I think that potentially <laughs> is the reason why J.B. Pritzker is doing that. We know that J.B. Pritzker came in to the scene on a very rocky start with Black voters being caught on previous recorded FBI tapes, talking to um, then-Governor Rod Blagojevich about picking the least offensive Black man to put into the U.S. Senate seat that was vacated by um, President Barack Obama, and that didn't sit well. Um, but what has been interesting is watching the trajectory of J.B. Pritzker and how he's also mishandled the Black community, even as being governor. Um, we saw the battle that he got into with uh, Congresswoman Robin Kelly as the first Black woman DPI chair in uh, the state of Illinois history, coming off of the corruption of Michael Madigan. And then we get somebody like Robin Kelly and J.B. fought her tooth and nail to get the seat. Um, she gets booted out of the seat, and um, a lot of people in the African-American community were not happy about that. I think about the cannabis legalization across the state of Illinois and how Black folks were not given, uh, we were not given business licenses to open these dispensaries. And a lot of these licenses went to very wealthy white men who um, did not get harmed by the war on drugs, which was the whole impetus of the legislation to begin with, um, right? And so... I think JB knows that he doesn't have such a strong foothold. I think he has way more political aspirations outside of the governorship. Um, now, Finn, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm not the wealthiest person in the room, but I think that what I lack in prestige and, and book smarts, I make up for in common sense. Um, if you can't take care of your house, how can you run for the White House? And that is the question that J.B. Pritzker is going to have to ask himself as he, you know, the rumors continue to swirl that he wants to be president of the United States one day. Here's the final thing that I will say. Uh, on the west side of Chicago, after the Highland Park mass shooting happened on July 4th, a couple of months later or a month or so later, there was a mass shooting um, in West Garfield Park. 14 people were shot. Um, and it really shook the community up. I mean, obviously we deal with gun violence in this area, but for innocent people to be just standing and congregating and then just be gunned down is traumatic for any community. Um, there has not been equitable investment in trauma-informed care for those Black working-class families in West Garfield Park. We saw the complete investment in trauma-informed care for the Highland Park victims, which it should have been. And in this case, it's not either or, it's in both. And I think to um, continue to brush, once again, communities to the wayside is ultimately gonna come back and hunt J.B. Pritzker um, and his political aspirations and ambitions. And so um, I think he's trying to build up more black support because we have some questions in the black community uh, about J.B. Well, uh, I'll leave aside then what his decision-making process was in the uh, the wards that are not black, because it's baffling. But um, uh, and I just have to add one little line uh, to pick up on something you said: uh, the people who got the lowest licenses, so white people who got those uh, reefer licenses, uh, were not uh, harmed on the war and drugs. I will to that. I will add: no, they were getting high during the war. <laughs> Pretending like, oh my God, I'm outraged about this, you know, this marijuana use. What? Do, do not get me started on the hypocrisy. Okay, I just to this day it's still illegal on a federal level. I don't understand why Joe Biden. Uh, it hasn't been descheduled either. It still sits in the same category. Marijuana still sits in the same category as heroin, and it could not be further different from one another and the effects and the uh, adverse effects on the body, et cetera. But 
yeah, I mean, that was botched here in Illinois. I mean, the whole movement to legalize cannabis, it was directly, you can draw it directly back to criminal justice reform and the fight um, to end the mass carceral system that plagues our communities um, and, and plagues Black neighborhoods. And so um, for us to add insult to injury and add all these barriers in place to get these licenses is garbage. It's just, it's, it's bad politics, it's morally incorrect, and it's economically damaging to our community. Uh, all right, we're going to close uh, with this little point. I got to do the shout out here before we leave. Uh, part of the reason I was inspired to reach out to Kina again, I was having dinner with a, with a friend. I want to shout out to Tara. Uh, and uh, we were having dinner uh, at a restaurant in your district. Uh, Kina, Greek Island. Shout out Greek Islands. Ooh, I love the chicken. Anyway, um, <laughs> and so she was just extolling your virtues. Uh, she voted for you uh, in the congressional election. And then, you know, I said, oh, that's nice. She goes, and I wrote her in as a candidate. Uh, and I go, what? And so she showed me the picture on her phone. Oh, wow. That she took uh, Kina Collins. She wrote your name in and... Uh, I go, I got to bring Keenan back on this show. So I want to give a shout out to Tara. Uh, you're my girl, Tara. And uh, she she loves you so much, Keenan Collins. She wrote you in, okay? <laughs> I'm just excited yeah. about what the, with all of this that we've talked about, right? I'm excited about the future of politics in the city of Chicago. I think that we, one of the, the things that I really wanted to do when I ran for Congress uh, in, was to make, democratic leadership pay attention to the west side of chicago and everybody's like they're not going to take you serious um when you get the president of the united states to weigh in on your election cycle that means we're on their radar and that's what the left needs to continue to do if we can make these elected officials sit up straight in a room when we walk in a room and demand things around policy um that is us doing our job look we raised over $1.4 million. We had a thousand active volunteers, didn't take a dime of corporate PAC money in order to do it. We can build these movements that we believe in and the people will follow us if we build it. And so um, I'm gonna be very interested to see what happens in the mayoral race, but my eyes have always been on the city council because it doesn't matter who the mayor is, if the people who are supposed to be serving in representative democracy and our city council are as equally as corrupted, which is what, you know, we got Harold Washington and we also got the Vority Act 29, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so this is a, a interesting time in Chicago politics is the highest turnover we've seen. <laughs> Something's going on at city council. <laughs> 16 retirements, I think, something like that. Um, so we got a lot of open seats and a lot of uh, fresh blood that could potentially come on. And people, please pay attention to the police district council races, please. People ask me how to describe these police district council people that will come on. What is the role that they're doing? They are serving as the only accountability metric that we have for the largest budget item in our city budget, which is the Chicago Police Department. They are supposed to do the overview of that. They are supposed to make sure that the police are doing their job, but that they're including the community voice in the decisions that are, are happening. Please pay attention to who is running in your police district council because they're going to put a check and balance in place in CPD that we've never had before. So shout out to CARP. Shout out to everybody who is doing the work on the ground um, to make this a reality. Um, but we can only get stronger from here, Ben. I, I believe that. All right, uh, Keena, next time you come on the show, uh, we're going to get into some congressional stuff. Uh, we just spent so much time talking municipal. We'll get into the congress. I'd love to get your thoughts on what's going down in Congress, uh, the strategies that the Democrats are employing now that they're in minority. If you were there, you'd be hanging with your pals in the squad. Uh, and uh, All my friends got elected. They got elected. I got a shot yeah. of Summer Lee, Greg Cesar. They got elected. They're doing their thing. Corey Bush, shout out to Congresswoman Corey Bush. They're doing their thing. Yeah, and AOC, all these people that uh, your political allies with, uh, and we could talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and her bizarre balloons. Tanya everything. Harding, the Tanya Harding of the Republicans. Yeah, it was like we're straight out of Tanya. That's so true. Tanya Harding, the skater. Yeah, I don't know where she got. 
uh, man, what the Republicans are so bizarre. Um, even Mitt Romney thinks they're weird. Uh, George Santos, you'd be in the Congress with George Santos. Oh my God. I missed it. That is just too wild, too wild. I missed uh, it. All right. Very good. Kina, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. That's Kina Collins. Also want to thank producer Chris. Outstanding job as always. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can catch previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at ChicagoReader.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.